Scripture. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you're new or visiting, we're just really glad that you're here. Uh, we love to just study books of the Bible. We took a pit stop and walked through um, uh, the vision and mission of the church, which was uh, fantastic to do, fantastic to walk through as a family, to get back on board together and be kind of realigned in what God has called us to as uh, a faith family. So we're back in Luke. Uh, Michael kicked it off last week. Just super thankful for uh, the word he gave. I uh, heard just uh, many deeply encouraging things about the ways that God used that uh, message to edify you and build you up and strengthen you, sharpen you, convict you, uh, change you. So um, unfortunately, we, we didn't get the audio, but we posted the notes online in case some of you guys were asking for the audio. Uh, you can just read it right there. Just click on the notes portion underneath and, uh, and enjoy reading. So um, uh, I don't know if you're like me, so we come in this room every Sunday, and this is why I want to I keep doing this, because there are so many things vying for your attention, okay? So uh, I, I just want to be aware of uh, the pulse in the room that's normal for anybody that, that breathes and lives. Uh, we walk into this room not always wanting to sing, wanting to hear, wanting to be in community, wanting to confess sin, wanting to be convicted of sin, wanting to walk in holiness, walk in righteousness. Maybe some of us just feel like we want to give up on the whole thing. Uh, so I want to be just keenly aware of just the temperature of our hearts that, that happens often. So uh, Because I know when I walk in, I'm no different than you. So maybe you think because I'm a pastor, I walk in, there's a halo, and I'm just ready to preach the word every week, and I'm just super fired up and excited. But there are sometimes where I walk in with two hours of sleep, I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm a little bit uh, just unsure what God is, is wanting to say. So, so here's what I want to do again is just give us just one second just to say, uh, God, remove distraction. Okay, because we're all distracted by something I know it this morning. Whether it's an anxiety on your heart, whether it's uh, someone you're angry at, whether your heart's just discontent, whether you're just frustrated at work or a job or family, your your dumb kid, dumb kid, that was a little much, but just your kid, you know, that, that just won't behave. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I've got one too, it's fine. So so we love them, we pray for them, but they're dumb, okay? So so once they pass 18, they get more dumb. Then when they're at past 25, they start getting better. I'm going to stop Right there, good? Okay, so, so look, we just, we need to pray. We, we really do because, because here's the other side of the coin that's, that's super true that many of us are probably just unaware of is when you walk in this room, you realize that not only your flesh is against you, not only the, the indwelling sin that is still residually affected from the fall, but, but even the adversaries, you know, they, they, they want nothing more than you to be completely turned off, right, and, and distracted. So let's just pray. Okay, let, let's bow our heads and ask God to remove that, all right? Whatever you need, just with you and the Lord, just ask him in, in quiet. Say, God, help me to hear, help me to see your glory, help me to be attentive, give me energy, give me grace. Uh, if your heart is bothered in, in some way, ask him to deal with it. Father, help us this morning to see you, to have eyes on you. God, help us to, to feel and, and see the beauty and weight that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ again. Father, I pray you'd continue to build us up into a community of people that, that loves you, that loves people who don't know you, that loves your glory, that loves to walk in righteousness, that hates our sin, that desires to put off the things that no longer enslave us and to clothe ourselves with all that is ours in Christ. God, speak to us in, in a loud way this morning, in a way that we can hear and understand. We need your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Uh, go to Luke chapter 6. If you, if you didn't turn there, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Uh, we'd love for you to have one. If you don't own one, that's, that's yours to keep. And uh, here's what we do. If, if you're wondering what this is, this is very simply a worship service where we worship Jesus. We believe he's king, he's savior, he's Lord, he is God in fullness. He was fully God and fully man when he came and lived the perfect life for us and died the death for us, took the punishment for us for our sin, rose again victorious over Satan, sin, and death, and reconciles us to God solely by his person and work. So we worship him. We worship him by singing songs like we were just doing. We worship him by listening and hearing and preaching the word of God. We worship him by taking what's called the Lord's Supper. We do it at the end of each service. And we worship him by uh, giving generously because he gives most generously in himself. And so we give him the small black box in the back. Remember, we just started last month Benevolence Fund. So there's one of those two, the last Sunday of every month. We're going to keep giving uh, to build up that fund to help uh, those in need, to help members in need, to help the surrounding community in need. So um, that's, that's why we're here. Um, and this morning, here's what we're going to see. We've been Walking through the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke is really fun because uh, if you're in this room and you're kind of a skeptic at heart, you doubt a lot, uh, this is for you because this is actually why Luke wrote this Gospel. He wrote to a Roman official named Theophilus who is not totally certain of the things of Christianity, of the life and teachings of Jesus. So he's, he's writing this Gospel to provide evidence after evidence, argument after argument that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh, that he is Savior of sinners, and he wants this Roman official and the rest of us by default to know that, okay? And, and here's the thing to get. He doesn't just want you to know facts about Jesus, okay? He wants those facts and that information to transform you, okay? So, so if you just leave here week after week just knowing more knowledge that just puffs you up, doesn't humble you to a place where you want to grow in God, know God, then, then there's something wrong. So that's what we want for you. We don't want just heady people that leave knowing a lot of doctrine. We love doctrine. We, we encourage it. We preach it. We want to absorb doctrine into our bloodstream so that it grows love for God, love for people, hatred for sin, love for holiness. You catch what I'm saying? So we want transformation. Okay, we don't just want you to be informed. We want you to be transformed. Okay, so that, that's why Luke is, is writing this to us. And, and here's what we're going to see this morning. He's going to start preaching uh, one of his most famous sermons ever recorded, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, yay, that's right. Eric loves it. Okay, so, so now here's what you, you got to get. The, the Sermon on the Mount, he, Luke only gives you about 49 verses of it. Uh, Matthew records this in much more detail with about three chapters, chapters 5 to 7. Um, and so here's what you got to understand when Jesus is, is preaching. Um, as, as Jesus goes out uh, and he's preaching and teaching, he's followed by large masses, okay? So he's not going to go in a synagogue and preach like other rabbis and teachers because uh, 30 people, 40 people may be fitting there, and these are thousands of people at times following him. So he just preaches in the air. He just goes out, the crowds gather, and he just preaches sermons. And he's the best preacher who ever lived, okay? So he can hold a crowd. He doesn't need seeker-sensitive sermons. He just lays out he is God, right? He's, he's letting words fall the way that they need. And so he might preach an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. So his whole sermon is not 49 verses, Okay, this is not all that Jesus said. Okay, even Matthew's gospel, that's not his whole sermon. You can read that sermon in 10 minutes. Jesus wasn't done in 10 minutes. He was just starting his intro. Okay, so you understand like that? So to give you an idea of, of how he's preaching and teaching, and, and, and here's why. Jesus probably, speculative, uh, he, he would, like any great preacher, go over truths and then reiterate truths. So in Matthew's account, you've got him mentioning truths. In Luke's gospel, I think you have him just reiterating those truths again. He'll leave out a few words, leave out a few details, but he's saying things they've already heard. Okay? So we're going to go back and forth kind of to Matthew's gospels and Luke to see uh, the meshing of this come together. And um, what he's going to do in this sermon is two things. One, he's going to force all of us to take honest stock of our souls. Okay? 
so he's going to invade your personal space. Okay, and they're like, oh, man, well, you came to church. I mean, that's, that's you know, at church, Jesus invades our personal space because he loves you. Okay, so he's going to get at the things deep down in your heart because he loves you. He wants you to walk in fullness of life and fullness of joy and fullness of freedom found in the person and work of Jesus. So he's going to say all these things, not because he wants you to be enslaved or burdened. or He wants you to walk in newness of life. He wants you to know that God wants to forgive you, wants to show mercy, wants to show kindness, that he's a good, kind father. Okay, so that's, that's what we're also going to see in this. So number one, he's going to force you to take some personal inventory. Uh, there are actually seats up here in the front if you don't mind getting spit on. Okay, right up here. And then on the left side, um, just if you're looking. Okay, so, so, and if you guys could squash in too or over here, there's some seats too. Okay, so, so, then back up here. Back up, right? We all kind of divert. Stay up here. Okay, so, so, so here's the one. That's number one, right? Take honest stock of our souls. Okay, number two, he wants to show you how upside down the kingdom of heaven is from the kingdom of man. Okay, or the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Christ, how upside down it is the kingdom of culture. He's going to show you how reverse it is, right? Because the kingdom of culture, the kingdom of Christ says, hey, you work hard to achieve for yourself, make a name for yourself, and worship yourself. And he's going to say, no, you don't, you don't worship make a name for yourself. You live and exist fundamentally to worship me and glorify me with what I've given you. Okay, so you're going to see that change as well, this upside-down nature to the kingdom of heaven. And, and just to get a feel for this, you remember last week, Michael ended with these large crowds gathering to hear him preach and teach. Uh, some traveled for days. You've got to understand that most of these people were simple, poor people. Um, you've got people coming from by the Sea of Galilee that most of them by trade were just fishermen. Uh, you've got people up in the hills that were probably just herding uh, animals and, and, and farming crops. And so the, Jesus, this is going to land well for them because Jesus identifies with them. He's just a, a nobody from Nazareth whose dad was a carpenter and he's a carpenter. Yet they're blown away by his teaching. He's not a king by any expectation. Yet he comes and the things that come out of his mouth just astound people. That's why you'll read consistently <laughs> when he says things, people are going afterwards, going, man, can you believe the way this guy talks? You'll see that throughout the Gospels. I can't just believe the, th- the things he said. People were just, were just stunned by him. And so um, this is why Jesus goes. He's in this open area, going to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just give you a, a, a visual for this. I had the privilege of going to Israel a number of years ago, and, and we went to where the Sermon on the Mount was preached, right off the Sea of Galilee, and Here's what's so fascinating is as you get to the bottom, uh, most of us picture like this amphitheater uh, where Jesus is on the top of a hill uh, speaking down at everybody, right? Is that probably true? Yeah? Okay, that's what I used to thought, think. Okay, so, so, so I used to think that, right? So, but, but really he was at the base of the mountain, okay, and there's wind coming off the Sea of Galilee that formed a natural amphitheater. Okay, so here's what's wild. Our guide, who was a senior pastor of the previous church I pastored at, um, he said, hey, everybody go like a quarter mile up and just stand there. And we went, I mean, almost a quarter mile up this hill, stood there, and he talked just like this with no amplification. We could hear him just like this. Incredible. Just a natural amphitheater. So you're wondering, how did Jesus speak to masses? And he didn't have a sound equipment. He didn't have, you know, uh, PAs and guys in the back going, a little bit louder, a little bit softer. I mean, he didn't have any of that, right? He just, he just spoke, and it worked because God created the universe. He created this area. He knew he was going to preach there, and the wind just carried his voice. Amazing, okay? So that's what he's doing. He's preaching to the masses who are on this hill, probably hundreds, maybe thousands. He doesn't need to raise his voice. He doesn't need to scream. He just talks, and people can hear him. Okay, they can hear this sermon on the mount and um, as we get into this Luke has a purpose this is why he only includes 29 verses in the sermon not because these are the only 29 verses that Jesus said he wants you to be convinced the life and teachings of Jesus so what has he done he's rolled out his miracles he's rolled out healing he's rolled out the virgin birth but do you know one of the most 
provocative things that evidences his deity, his godness, is what he taught. Okay? So it's fundamentally what he's teaching that proves and verifies and validates that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Okay? We know this because he's taught with authority. No other rabbi or teacher taught with such authority. Yet Jesus doesn't make wishful statements. He says things. He goes, this is how it is. Okay? This is what's true. This is what's not true. Okay? So he wants to convince Theophilus by the teaching of Jesus as well. So as he carefully and thoughtfully does this, we're going to see him roll this out. And, and that's why you'll see, what, what do the religious leaders do? They can't stand it because it's so upside down to their natural mode of thinking. So they attribute his teaching to Satan, right? They go, oh, he must be teaching on behalf of Satan because I don't even understand this. It's so upside down. It's so reverse of what I thought. I thought I needed to work and have ritual and morals and all these things to find favor with God. And he's going, no, it's a new thing centered on grace we heard last week. Uh, Jesus is going to explain this starting in verse 20. Let's dive right in. We're going to see how the teachings of Jesus are alien to everything we think and our natural mind. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. First church service, probably a bad thing to say, right? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then he changes. He switched gears. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Okay, so I want us to see it and hold us, then we're going to break it apart and just do the blessings and the woes or the cursings, okay, so we get the, the fullness of what he's saying. So right out of the gate, though, look, it says, this is primarily directed to his disciples. Okay, now, you got to understand what that means. There's basically like three categories of disciples in this, okay? If you remember last week, go back to like verses 16 to, to 19, what happens? Jesus calls what? His 12 apostles, right? Establishes them, says, you're going to help teach my message, teach my mission. I'm going to train you guys. You're going to be my closest companions. You're going to go out. You're going to do all this work for the renown of me. And so you got those 12. Those are, those are one area of his disciples. Then he comes down the mountain and there's these other group of disciples. There's a great crowd of them. Okay, this is the mixed bag. Okay, these are the people that might not have saving faith, but they're like really interested. They're curious. They're, they're wanting to know more. They're following Jesus. They're, they're listening to his teaching. Some of them are, are even leaving vocations. Okay, so there's that second group. Then there's a third group who, these are the people on the fringe. These are people that are just, man, so super curious. Okay, maybe that's you. You're just like, man, what's going on with this whole Christianity thing? Who's this Jesus guy? I just want to listen. I love what he's doing, these, these magical works. And so they're just following him around from, he says, all over Judea, Jerusalem. There's just tons of people. So you got a mixed bag of quote-unquote disciples. You have committed followers, growing learners, and just curious followers, okay? Now, what's beautiful about that? That's just like our gathering here this morning, right? Without a doubt, maybe some of you are intimate followers of Jesus, and you love him, and you follow him, and you walk with him. Uh, maybe others of you, you, you don't have saving faith, but you're, you, you come regularly, 
and you're interested, and you ask questions, you get together with other brothers and sisters from here, and you, you dialogue a bit, and what does this mean? You email me, and we, we talk about those different questions and things going on. You, you meet with someone to just kind of learn more about what the gospel is, what it means for your life, what the church is, what it means for your life. And then there are others of you that are just totally on the fringe, and you come every week just because you're curious. But you're in an arm's length, right? You don't want any sin to be revealed. You don't want anyone to step on your toes. You don't want anyone to invade your private space, but you come. Okay, so we got all that here this morning. Okay, that's, that's present right here. And so Jesus does what any great preacher does. He preaches just a message that will fall on every piece of soil regardless of where you land. That's what great preachers do. And, and it's, it's always just Jesus and his message. It's just the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can preach that each week to all three categories, all three categories will be hearing what they need to hear. So what he's going to do here is basically preach the good news of Jesus Christ. In his Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see how he does this. And look, he starts with blessings. Okay, this already seems so upside down. You're going, hold on a second. Blessed is the poor. Blessed are those who are reviled. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are weeping. Okay, last time I checked, when I, when I didn't have a lot, I lacked material possessions, that, that wasn't good. I didn't feel blessed, Right? Last time someone was insulting me and saying wrong things about me, I, I didn't feel blessed. <laughs> I didn't feel edified. Right? Last time I was hungry, I didn't, I didn't feel blessed. So you're going, I thought we were trying to alleviate poverty. I thought we were trying to give to the poor. I thought we were trying to give food to those who are hungry. I thought we were trying to prevent and fight for those who are ridiculed and persecuted. Right? Anyone else feel that way? When you read this, it's upside down, right? It doesn't make sense to your natural mind and the way you're wired. Right? And then you're looking at the woes going, hold on a second. Woe to you when you actually have money? That's all I've been trying to do, right, is, is get money. I mean, woe to you when you're, when you're full? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to feed my family. Wait, woe to you when everybody likes you? I mean, when everyone just thinks you're awesome? That, that's not a great thing? And Jesus is going to dig into as why these things are important. So here's two things you got to know. Number one, blessed is the word that just means to sit in a favorable position. Okay. And, and cursed or a woe is just to sit in an unfavorable position, spiritually speaking. So the blessed person sits and enjoys the best spiritual condition possible. And the person who's woed or cursed is the person who endures the worst spiritual condition possible. Follow that? We're going to see that roll out. Look, number one. Okay, let's look at both these and compare here. He says first, blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, to help you, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, here's what he's not talking about. He's not talking about those who are materially, economically poor. Okay? Now, there, there are a lot of ways people think this sermon's taught that I disagree with. So, a lot of people, even great theologians think that this is taught to, to talk about ethics or morality or condition. Okay? I think Jesus very clearly is talking about salvation. I think he's blatantly showing shadows of Luke 4 where he's talking about how someone is saved and brought in the kingdom of God and how someone is outside the kingdom of God because that's why Luke is writing. That's what Jesus came to do, seek and save sinners. So he's telling people, he's preaching the sermon to show you, hey, here are the spiritually lost, here are the spiritually saved, where do you land? Okay, that's what he's doing here. So he first says here, blessed are the poor in spirit, okay, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so he's not talking about that because you're poor, somehow you're more holy in God's sight or you're more favored upon his sight. 
Okay, he's talking about how you are spiritually bankrupt. You realize you're spiritually poor. You realize there is nothing you can come to the table with to the God of the universe and offer him so that he can somehow purchase you into the kingdom. Okay, there, there's nothing. You come to the table with nothing. Okay, you don't come with your achievements and your works because he's fully sufficient. He looks at that and goes, I already have all that I need. You don't bring anything to the table. You are spiritually bankrupt. You desperately need righteousness outside of yourself. You desperately need a substitute that isn't you. You desperately need someone to live your life for you because you're broken, you're fractured, you're cut off from God, and you need someone else to do it. So he's going, you're spiritually poor. You're poor in spirit. You're aware of your need. You're aware that I'm not righteous. You're aware that I... I'm aware that I need righteousness. I love this. They understand their sin can't be removed by ritual, righteous acts, good works, positive thinking. They know no no matter how much religion they do or ceremony they get caught up in, it can't achieve what only Christ can achieve for them. You realize you're, you're spiritually poor. And this is why we see shadows of this in Luke 4. Remember in the synagogue he says, I didn't come for the spiritually proud, I came for the spiritually poor. He's been preaching this consistently. I came for those who realize they lack something in light of an infinitely holy God, and I'm here to provide it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm upholding the law for everyone who can't uphold the law. Beautiful. Beautiful that he's going to be our substitute. So we see him kind of, kind of rolling this out. If you're keenly aware of your spiritual bankruptcy, there's grace for you, grace that can't be bought and can't be earned. And that word poor, to really further emphasize that, really, really comes from the word to mean to beg. Like, you're just, you're begging for salvation. You're you're begging to be delivered from your spiritual poverty. I want this to be made right. I I want forgiveness from God. I want to walk right with God. I want to have righteousness with God. I want to have all of these things with God. Beautiful. And I love it. What does the spiritually poor receive? The kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Everything. Everything. Love, grace, comfort, kindness, eternal life, right? Everlasting love, everlasting compassion, right? Co-heirs with Christ. You got mercy, you got righteousness that's stamped on your behalf that you didn't earn, you didn't barter with, you didn't obtain on your own. It's all Jesus. You get the entire kingdom of God. You get planets, you get stars, you get galaxies, right? We inherit the kingdom fully in heaven. You are the richest person already and not yet because you're already rich in Christ because you have all of him, but then it'll be fully realized where you're in heaven with all the saints going, I can't believe I have have the whole kingdom of God. Right, so now your life isn't measured by what you have and don't have, do and don't do. It's by what kingdom you're in. <laughs> he says you get the whole kingdom of God if you realize that you're spiritually poor. Look at the contrast. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. It's not talking about material riches. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Solomon was rich. <laughs> A lot of godly men that were rich. He's not talking about if you have a lot. He's not talking about the physical, but the spiritual realm, right? He's talking about the person who thinks they can buy salvation. I don't have any need. I, already ha- I, already, I can't already earn grace by my merits. Do you see me? I'm CEO. You see my land? See my gated fence? See my pepper spray I get my daughter? I mean, you, I got it all set up. See my watchdog, right? I mean, I've got all these things in place, so my security, my contentment, it's all there, and I don't need, to, I don't need anything from the infinite God of the universe. They don't realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They don't realize that no money can, be, can buy salvation. They have nothing to barter with. It's incredible, the contrast here, right? 
We come to the table with nothing. And these people come. He says, woe to you when you think that by your righteous works, your merits, your deeds, your morality, somehow you're buying the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is infinitely more than any dollar bill that will ever exist on the planet. And by the way, the kingdom of God made money. Right? So if you're just trying to think that money's going to grow you in, in, in wealth, well, you're missing out. You want the kingdom of God. You want the maker of the money. Okay? You don't just want the money. Money's going to burn. Money's going to be gone. Your house is going to burn. All that stuff's going to just fade away. But the kingdom of God will stand forever. And so he's just rolling out these comparisons here that is so, so beautiful. So do you boast to God? Look at my achievements. Look at what I do. Look at what I have. How do you approach him? Or do you approach him as spiritually bankrupt? Look at the second one. Jesus says, blessed are the hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Matthew helps us and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, this simply builds upon the spiritually poor. When you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt and you're in need of righteousness outside of yourself, you're going to start hungering for it. You're going to go, man, I want it. Like, I want to be made right with God. I want rightness with God. I need righteousness, not of my own doing. And you start hungering for it. Only when you realize that you're spiritually poor. So it's just, just a ripple effect. If you don't get that you're spiritually bankrupt before an infinite God, that you can't do anything to make you right, you're going to start hungering for what will make you right. He's going, man, it's the righteousness of Jesus. He's the righteous one. So your life chases and hungers for the only thing that makes you righteous, which is Jesus. Is, there that, is that a hunger in you? Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you see your deep need and spiritual bankruptcy that you, you chase the one who can make you right before him? Is that in you? Is there a spiritual hunger where you're painfully aware of your state before him? Because this person then drinks of the well in John 4 where he's, never sa- he's always satisfied. He eats the bread of life, which is Jesus in John 6. When he tastes him, he's satisfied. There's no more hunger. He's full. Look at the contrast. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You see the difference? (laughs) Woe to you who are full of yourself. Woe to you who think that you don't need anything, that you're fully satisfied and fully sufficient in you. Woe to you who are arrogant and, and stealers of God's worship and glory. And want to make a name for you and, and boost yourself up. Right? He's just showing this contrast. So the easy question here is, are you chasing the wind? What are you chasing to be made full? Okay, because listen, if it's anything outside of the risen work of Jesus Christ, who you need desperately a power outside of you to fix anything in you, so it's not about just looking deeper in your soul, deeper in yourself to fix your problems. You look outside of you at a risen Christ who has resurrection power to break the slaves of sin, the enslavement of sin and allow you to walk in freedom. So if you're not looking there, you're looking at something else. So what are you chasing after? What, more money? A better marriage? More kids? The way people look at you, once people look at me better, then I'm going to be okay and full. You looking for a promotion? Are you looking for, what are you looking for, esteem? What are you chasing that is you're trying to functionally satisfy your heart? And listen, whatever you chase, you're, gonna, you're just going to grow in bitterness and frustration because that stuff will never work. It'll work for a time and a season. You'll keep hitting the wall. you keep slamming in the wall, and you'll get more disgruntled, more angry, more frustrated. So you'll keep trying to do what is called insanity. You keep doing what doesn't work thinking it might work. Right? So you just run in the cul-de-sac of life. 
You never look outside of it at Jesus who says, I died for you. You don't have to perform. I perform for you. You don't have to work to earn something. I earned it for you. It's freely given. You can't barter with me. Amazing. He says, I'll satisfy your empty heart. Look at number three. We're going to tie all these up at the end. Jesus says this, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This is just reiterating the awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy, which cultivates a hunger for righteousness, which then causes you to weep over your sin. I realize my state now. I realize my, my, my weeping, my, my state before you, that it's just deplorable, that there's nothing I, I can do to earn this incredible favor from God, that he gives it unconditionally. Right? This is amazing. This person's blessed. Right? This is, there, there's humility here. And, and this, is, this involves repenting because you go from weeping to laughter. You go from sorrow to joy. Right? Because you realize the one thing that's going to resolve the ache in your heart. Right? I mean, if you flip over to 2 Corinthians 7, I was thinking about this. Just, just go there if you have a Bible. It's not on the screen. 2 Corinthians 7, there's a chapter on joy that Paul gives. He's going he's to show you guys this kind of act of repentance. Okay, Here's what he says. It's, it's not self-word, it's God-word. It's not others' word, it's God-word. Okay, I realize I've offended him. I realize he's the one I've sinned against, right? You see this idea of repentance. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, go to verse 10. It says there, there's two types. There's godly sorrow. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, so the person who has real repentance is weeping over the sin. They're grieved by their sin, and they leave sin, turn to Christ, right? And then there's joy. Okay, they're grieved fundamentally because they've dishonored him. Okay, because they realize, man, I've, I've sinned against him. I've sinned against the God of the universe. That's blasphemy. That's the sin I've committed. It's not that I've just, you know, done wrong to people or stolen, you know, Skittles in a 7-Eleven. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, man, no, it's, it's against a holy, righteous judge who's showing mercy in Christ. When you realize that, that's going to lead to change. doesn't leave any regret. And then he says, but there's worldly sorrow where you just feel bad. I tell people all the time, it, Everybody's convicted of sin. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. Okay, there are people walking around all the time that feel bad about stuff they do, but do they feel bad just simply because they hurt somebody? Or do they feel bad and convicted because they dishonor the sovereign name of all things? Why do they feel grief? Right? And that's just worldly. It's just worldly sorrow. And so which one are you? What, do you? what are you grieved by? Right? You're going to see this in Psalm 51, a great display. Right after David, a God of man's own heart, commits adultery, what does he say? He says, against you only have I sinned. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't blame it on everybody else. And here's what's so amazing. What do we do when we sin a lot of times? We just blame, we justify it. And, and then he comes to him, he comes to God and says, not only against you only have I sinned, but I love what he appeals to. He says, according to your steadfast love, will you forgive me? Now, now what do we appeal to a lot of times? A lot of times we like to like, let time pass, right? If you, you know, if you commit the real bad sin, whatever it is in your life, you, so you just like let time pass, and then later you start asking for forgiveness. Okay, so some time's passed. Maybe he's happy now again. Maybe he'll forgive me now. Or you just read the Bible like crazy for a week. Right? And then, okay, God, look at what I've done. I've read the Bible now. Now you can forgive me. Now you can show favor to me. And you're still relying on something else to forgive you. 
No, it's very simple in Psalm 51. He commits sin, he admits his sin, is forgiven, walks away in joy. That's all it is. He doesn't blame it and let time pass. He just admits the raw, honest truth. Because the truth is, many of us in this room are just lying all the time. You're just, you're just living a lie. And you're dumbing down your sin. When you confess your sin to God, you kind of pretty it up, even though he knows what you did. You ever thought about it? He's like, I already saw what you did, so why don't he just be honest? Christ is sufficient to cover that sin. Well, God, I didn't really mean to. Yeah, you did. I saw your heart. Oh, okay. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't really kiss right. Yeah, I did. I saw your lips touch. I mean, it's like, it's just crazy what we do, right? Like, I mean, seriously, this is, this is what we got to get, man. That, 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 that's true repentance. That he goes, man, no, you're so loving. Your love never fails. That's what I'm appealing to. I'm not appealing to anything I do for forgiveness or, or merit or righteousness. It's because of I know who you are. I know what your character's like. And I know that you're going to blot out my transgressions because you by nature are merciful. Profound. We could sit there all day. Let's keep moving. Look at the contrast here. It says, woe to you though who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is sobering. Um, these are those who instead of weeping over their sin, Laugh at it. Rejoice in it. They laugh at the abuse of women in pornography. They love joining in on it. They, they, they laugh at the persecution of Christians. They love it. They, they, they love it when we just get together, just debauchery and fornication. We just laugh about it. We, we go back to our offices the next day and we just, we just laugh about it, Right? It's not serious. It's not soul decaying. We just laugh. And he says, be careful if that's you. It doesn't see your spiritual poverty. It doesn't see your need for righteousness because you might be laughing now, but you're going to ultimately weep. And we know what that means. Jesus will say that hell is a place of eternal gnashing of teeth, of eternal tears and sorrow. So, so be careful. You might be laughing now, but the end result is bad. Woe to you. You don't know reality. But blessed are you that, that man, you, you weep over your sin because you're going to ultimately be in joy in the kingdom of heaven. Praise God, right? Uh, amazing, sobering thing here, right? He's saying that, I heard one pastor say recently that um, the fool is somebody who laughs when he's on fire, right? So it's that person, the blessed person goes, I'm on fire, Right, I see my sin, I, I see where I'm headed. Man, save me, I need righteousness, I need forgiveness, I need rightness before God. Man, I need that, where's Jesus, right? Where's my substitute, where's my redeemer, where's my king? And then you got the other guy who's just on fire and he's just laughing. He fakes it, he doesn't think it's that bad, he just looks at everybody else, right? That's a fool. A fool just laughs while he is on fire. He doesn't see the decaying nature of his soul. Sobering. Number four. Last one, look at what Jesus says finally. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for your reward is great in heaven. I love this. There's a shift. There's a shift from how God sees you to how other people see you. Here's what's going on. You're, you've now been so transformed in your life that people see Jesus on you and they don't like it. And so they spurn you. And they revile you. And they hate you. They don't understand why you think the way that you think. They think you're crazy. They think you're ignorant. They think you're a fool. 
who's calling out for help while he's on fire. This is, these are the people he's talking about. This is just evidence that the first previous three are happening in your life. Listen, if you're aware of your spiritual poverty and you are hungering for righteousness in Jesus, and that's causing you to weep over your sin, you know what your life's going to look like? It's going to look like Jesus. It's going to look like a Christian. You're going to start living in such a way that other people, everyone's not going to like you. Even when the motives are right, even when all of a sudden you start loving Jesus, you start telling others about Jesus, your, your life starts forming around his good commands, his good desires, and everyone works from ways. Oh, here comes Sarah again, talking about Jesus in the workplace. If that's you, man, congratulations. He says, leap for joy. That shows that Jesus is on you. Man, if you're that person who's like, you're getting in discussions, why don't you come to the bar? When are you getting away? Well, I don't know. I find greater joy being with my husband, staying home. Really, you're insane. They laugh at you, man. Congratulations. Of course. You don't agree like the world believes and agrees about whatever legislation, whatever things happen. You graciously talk about where you stand, where you land for the good of your soul, for the joy of your health, for the glory of God. And they think you're just crazy and nuts and make fun of you, call you a bigot. Okay, congratulations. Leap for joy because there's a stamp of the eternal sovereign one of God on you. That, that's, the, that's the contradictory nature here. And be, leap for joy because it shows you've been transformed. Um, let me just say this, because I, I think I need to. Um, sometimes people take this text and abuse it, though. Um, because I really, I really want us to uh, think biblically. It, it could be that people don't like you because you love Jesus. Or it could be you're just a jerk. <laughs> right? I'm telling you. i I got to say it, because I've, I've met with people that claim this text they're like, man, I go into work, man, I just, man, I tell them how it is, I beat them over the head, I, I'm not gracious, I'm arrogant, I'm proud, I don't know why, man, they'll hate me, they'll, but I, I claim this verse, man, raise your word in heaven, man, I'm being reviled, I'm being, no, Matt, you're just a jerk. You know, I, I told him years ago, I had this guy meet with me, he was sharing me this story, I'm going, I'm going, don't worry, Matt, not you, not you, Matt's going to meet, no, it's not you, like, so years ago, right before this, this church, don't worry, don't worry, and he just, I remember him looking at me, and he's going, he's going, what, I'm going, dude, you're just a jerk. You're arrogant, you're proud, you're not gracious, you're not loving. Of course they revile you. I would. He's like, you're a pastor, I know, I sin. Right, so it's like, just, you just got to understand here what Jesus says, they revile you on account of him. Jesus is teaching you to be godly. He's not teaching you to be a jerk. I've seen this a lot. So we've got to be really careful. You've got to see what he's saying. He's saying they hate you because of the Son of Man, because of Jesus. But bless you when people see Jesus on you, when they see transformation, leap for joy. Now, can you imagine the apostles here in this message, guys? Okay, remember he just picked these 12. They come down the mountain like, man, there was a size here. We're going to preach forgiveness. The sin is going to be wonderful. It's going to be awesome. Everyone's going to like us. And he goes, oh, hold on, hold on. Out of the gate, before you leave, uh, you're going to be reviled. You're going to be persecuted. Um, not everybody's going to like your message because when your message is attached to me, it doesn't always bring love and kindness. Sometimes it brings hatred. Right? Isn't that awesome that he's, he's saying that to these disciples? Can you imagine the disciples going, wait, wait, what, what? Be careful. Some people might mock you. Be careful. Some people might do things slanderous to you because of this message that you are sharing. Know that when um, people attack you and your name's attached to me, they're attacking me. And because they attacked me, they're going to attack you, right? Amazing to think about this, right? 
You're going to be looked at as crazy by some. But he says, leap for joy. Even in the attack, even in the confusion, even in the insult, blessed are you. Okay, best analogy I can think of. A number of years ago, we had a high school reunion. We were playing basketball. Basketball is my least favorite sport. One, because I'm all torso, and my negative goes down. Okay, so my jump. So I go down when I jump. Okay, so I don't know how that works. So I, I just, I can't reach the hoop. I can't shoot. I can't score. I am terrible. So every time I would have, I know, I, at my expense, it's fine. Yeah. I just had someone outside in the hallway say, man, you make me feel so good because I'm around tall people all the time and I come up to you. I just had that out in the hallway. I feel so good when I'm around you because you make me feel tall. I'm like, I know. I get that all the time. So, 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 so here, here, is, here is what's going on here. I was at this game and everyone's picking teams and lo and behold, I'm the last guy to get picked. Now, that doesn't do good for pride and ego, which I have, right? So I'm like, man, no one's picking me. Like, I can at least run down the court and just wear people out. I mean, I can use my gifts. So, so they eventually, Nate Lee... One of my buddies who played Wheaton College, huge guy. I'm like, we compliment each other kind of well. I think you should just pick me. I'm the last guy left. He goes, all right, we'll take Reed. And I'm like, great, praise the Lord. So I get on there, and guys, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened in this game, but I was, I was golden fingers. I'm telling you, seriously, to this day, I've never had a day like it. I was making every shot I put up. I have never done I'm just going... It's just going in. I'm telling you, it was insane. Now, what happened in that moment as I'm just draining threes, just... Don't even need to look at it. It's going in. You know, like, seriously, everyone, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, everyone's like, man, double-team Mike, triple-team Mike. The pressure just started advancing on me. I'm going, oh, this is, this is awesome. People are actually guarding me now. People are actually, I'm a threat now, right? I'm like, okay, so is this not totally true? I mean, if, if your life is really being transformed, all of a sudden you're doing things for the kingdom, you're advancing the kingdom of God, what's going to happen? I don't like you. All of a sudden you're not on the bench anymore. You're actually playing the game. Right, all of a sudden, people are going to start increasing in pressure. You're going to start feeling attacks. You're going to start feeling all this stuff. Rejoice because you're doing something awesome. Rejoice because you're in the game and God's using you for his glory. Right, so many times we're like shocked by it. Man, I can't believe. We need to have a reversal of understanding here. No, praise God. Bring the heat on, right? Because I'm on the kingdom of heaven's team and I'm advancing the kingdom of heaven so the adversaries will press harder and will push harder and just bring all the more pressure on your marriage, on your life, on your study of the word, on your growth and godliness. On, he'll want to sow dissension in the body. He'll want to do all those things in you. And you've got to be aware. No, there's something else at work going on because God is moving. Because people see Jesus on me, right? So we leap for joy. Something else I want you to see here before we land the plane. He says, rejoice in that day. Okay. That isolates a day of persecution. Okay. It's important to know, and I'll tell us why in a minute. He also says, when people hate you. That's not constant, that's occasional. Some of you, not likely, will be constantly reviled and persecuted. Not likely. Okay. For most of us, it'll be occasional, okay? For most of us, that day is much more true of insults. It's not all the time, 24-7, like some brothers and sisters do experience, okay? Now, here's, here's why this is so important to understand. Here's why I say that. Um, again, I want you to view your life as biblically as possible. My fear is, because I've seen this happen a lot, you're going to somehow turn into this martyr complex, that if everyone doesn't hate me and everybody doesn't revile me, I'm somehow like not being used. I'm somehow not holy enough. 
So you in some twisted way, like almost try to bring it on, and that's dumb, okay? We're, we're people who occasionally are insulted on that day when that happens. This isn't ongoing, never-ending persecution. I love the, the reason one day we'll be in the kingdom of heaven will there be none of it ever. We'll be reigning and ruling with God. But he says here, this is something that will happen not always consistently, but sometimes. And here's why we need to hear this. Um, the early church in Acts 2 found favor with the people. You get to Acts 5, the people started looking pleasantly at the Christians in the church in Jerusalem. 1 Timothy 2 will tell us, hey, live godly, pleasant lives so there's respect for you. So you can show and demonstrate the transforming power of God in the gospel. Titus 3 says, live upright, holy, peaceable, gentle lives so people will listen. Peter will say, earn respect. Okay, so there's this dual reality happening where both are powerful demonstrations of the presence and work of Jesus in your life. So we grow in godliness. If we're reviled and persecuted, we'll take it. If we earn respect and we're looked at as pleasant, we'll take it. Because both are working to earn the advancement of the kingdom of God. One's not better than the other. Both are commanded by God. Both are good. So we want to see this dual reality at life, at our lives as Christians. Look at the contrast. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If everyone only speaks well of you, everyone. First, you're probably lying to everybody. But secondly, something's not right. And look at what he connects it to, false prophets. So if everyone you speak to, if you're trying to like tweak Jesus' message, he goes, well, you're just like the false prophets then. Because if you're trying to cater religion to everybody, and everyone just likes you because, hey, always kind of work, and there's no real absolute truth or definitive answer, then everyone's just going to love you. There's something wrong with that because it's not the true message. And he's saying to the apostles and disciples here going, hey, you're my messengers. You're my prophets. You're the guys who are going out. You're declaring this message. You're declaring my mission. Listen, when your message is attached to me, okay, there's going to be pushback. Not everyone's going to like you. Why? Because the message of the cross is foolishness to the natural man. It all of a sudden invades those spaces and talks about your sin. Most people are going, I don't want that to be brought to light. I don't want to show any of my life. I want to be perfect. I want to be fluffy on the outside, coast into heaven, not need to repent, not need to admit any wrong, right? That's, that's most people. So the gospel infringes on that and causes you to consider your soul, consider the decaying work of your soul outside of Christ to where you throw yourself on his mercy. So not everyone's going to love you. Not everyone's going to speak well of you. And if that's happening, you should probably ask why. Listen, I know what it's like. You get in conversations. I'm a pastor. I can't go anywhere with someone going, oh, you're a pastor? What's your chance on gay marriage? First thing they ask. I'm like, you don't want to know my name? You don't want to know, like, who I am? Like, what color my eyes are? Like, you, I mean, you don't know how many kids I have? You don't want to know me at all? We just launch in there? So, look, I, I, I know this. But listen, when they ask you questions, do you, do you respond with the truth of the gospel? Do you share the true message of Jesus? Or, or do you go, mm, and you start tweaking little areas? Well, yeah, Jesus' message is really for, for all people. No repentance necessary. Really no need to, to, to fully commit to Jesus. You can kind of just like say some words and keep living the way you want. There's no change really necessary. Do you, you start kind of tweaking his message or do you just lay it out and let the chips fall? To where some will respond as a poor, weeping, hungry person. And some will laugh and revile you and mock you, and see themselves as already full, 
and fully rich, spiritually speaking. That's God's work, not your work. You at least let the chips fall where they may. And so he's telling these apostles, preach the truth. Don't design a belief system that just caters to everybody. Preach the truth. I would say, we don't, we, don't, we don't believe we have to fear the truth here. It doesn't need help. Just lay it out. Come who may, right? Find forgiveness, find mercy. God's a good father. He loves you. He's after you in grace, right? Um, let's land the plane, make it personal. Let's just take some inventory. Uh, which one are you? <laughs> if you're in this room, I mean, I love this. Jesus is not making wishful, wishful statements. He's saying this is how it is. These people are blessed. These sit in a spiritually favorable position. Uh, these people are cursed or woe to these who see, don't see their spiritual need. Which one are you? Are you someone who's aware of his bankruptcy before a holy God? Are you someone who, who hungers for righteousness outside of your own? Are you someone who maybe you're reviled a little bit? Maybe you're mocked a little bit, whether it's by family, coworkers, neighbor? Is that happening anywhere in your life? Now, it could just mean you just like only being with Christians, so get around non-believers. Rub shoulders with them. But, but who are you? Are, so, or another way, have you seen that you're now rich because you have Christ? You've stepped into the kingdom of God? Were you at one time just, just hungering and hungering and you're now full because you know Jesus? Were you at one point weeping over your sin? You now walk in joy because you're forgiven? Or, on the other hand, Do you think you can buy your salvation? Do, do you, are you someone who just laughs while he's on fire? You know your sin. You know, you, know, you know what's really true about you. You know how you live. You know the inner workings of your soul. You know what life is like when you leave this room the six days of the week. There's no love for Jesus, no love for God, no repentance, and you just laugh while you're on fire and your soul decays. He's calling out in warning to you, saying, turn to me. Repent. Let your weeping go to laughter. Don't let your laughter go to eternal weeping. Run to Jesus. Don't miss what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to, re to reveal to you the joy in the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Right? Everything in you says, if I'm just rich, if I have all my food and everyone likes me, then life's good. And I'll cruise. And everything will work out well. It's a lie. Don't buy the lie. The truth is we're spiritually bankrupt before God. We desperately need righteousness outside of ourselves, which leads us to weeping over our sin, which turns to joy because we can't believe we inherit the kingdom of God and get love from an infinite God who exists in infinite perfections. And then people may push back, may revile, may blame, but guess what? They see Jesus on you, and you've got eternal reward in heaven coming. Praise God, right? These are the two differences. So which one are you? Now listen, for some, I bet this answer isn't going to just come quickly. I think some of you need to do some deep digging in your soul. I think some of you need to actually search around and see what's there. Others of you, you might be able to say, yep, I'm this, I'm this. There might be joy and encouragement. There might be conviction, challenge, concern. This is what Jesus is just saying as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Which one are you? I came to save sinners. This is a sermon about salvation. This is a sermon about the kindness and mercy of God. This is a sermon about the soul. 
Some of you, maybe if you're honest, you're going, yeah, I think I'm full, but I'm really starving. Yeah, I think I'm rich, but I realize I'm really poor. Yeah, I laugh a lot, but I realize my soul's decaying and I should be weeping. I don't know who you are. Um, let me say something before we end, because I, some of you guys are in this room and, and you're so new to this. <laughs> and you're hearing right now that there is an infinite God who made all things, who exists in infinite perfections, who somehow I'm saying which is what the scriptures are saying, demonstrates reckless love towards you that while you were messed up, while you were in your sin, not when you got cleaned up or let time pass, it was Psalm 51. While you were in the middle of your adultery against the God of the universe, you blasphemed his name, you wanted worship for yourself, you didn't want worship for him, you want to glorify him, you wanted to steal all of it, you wanted to make a name for yourself, you're really rich in all that you think you are, you're full of yourself, you have all you think you need, you're, you're just laughing at sin, your soul's decaying, you're laughing while you're on fire. You're saying to me, hold on a second, this God, if this is true, this seems so weird to me. Like, that doesn't make sense because if this God really exists like this and I know my honest state before him, he should punish me. He should wipe me out. And guess what? He should. He should do that to me. You're going, you're a pastor. You don't know the things I've done. You think I'm my slate's clean? Look, all of us have messed up, spotty past, spotty places. We don't live up to the perfection required by God. So he should punish us. Yet, Exodus 34 says he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, right? So no, he shouldn't do that. That's part of his character. That is just, that is fair, that is right. But what does he do? What does he do? He demonstrates insane, reckless love and says, okay, I'm going to go to the cross for you. I'm going to have my son slaughtered for you and show you, hey, that should be you. You should be taking that punishment. You should be dealing with that. I'm going to do it for you. And you come to the table with nothing, spiritually empty, spiritually bankrupt. You're weeping over your state. You see his kindness and mercy, and you leave the table full. You go, I'll take Jesus. I'll take my substitute. I'll take the righteous person on my behalf. And you go, man, I'm the most blessed person on the planet. I'm blessed right now. Whoa, now everybody's like kind of saying weird things about me. They think I'm crazier, but I know my, I'm locked into heaven, not based upon anything I earned or anything I did or any works or merit or ritual or ceremony or anything. You're going, I'm blessed. I'm in a favorable position spiritually. Praise God. Praise God for that. So, so, so who are you? And I'm saying if that, if that sounds weird to you, it should in a sense. That our God is, is that ridiculously loving. It shouldn't add up in your mind, but you should revel and enjoy the mystery and profound weight of that truth. And just receive it. And walk in it. And inherit the kingdom of God. And escape the kingdom of man. Beautiful what he does. For the desperate, there's blessing. Those aware of, of grace to shower them, there is encouragement for the self-sufficient, the arrogant, the proud, them who see no need for God, there's cursing, right? So that's, that's the question of the day for some, and for some of you, it's the question of the year. Are you blessed or cursed? Because there can be blessing for you in Christ. Let's pray and ask God to uh, show that to us. God, we thank you that you, your teaching is perfect. We thank you that you cut and divide the very issues of our heart that it's your word, that you've written it down so we can know it. God, I pray that people would honestly assess their lives this morning.